you have a Bible with you, we will be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Why don't I read that for us now? Hear the word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make the preaching of your word effective unto both salvation and sanctification. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're coming to the end. I mean, we're about at... Um, I think this is number 11 in our series entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on Race and Ethnicity and Mission. And up to this point, um, it, it's, it's interesting when you get to the letters of Paul that they're even having this discussion anymore. Because if you remember, we, as we looked, we've looked at this whole series, you begin in Genesis and Adam and Eve are created and all humanity comes from there. So all humanity, whether you're black or white or Asian or whoever you are, or you're created in the image of God, all humanity is implicated in sin and so you're, everyone needs a savior. And then you get to the nation of Israel we looked at, or Abraham first. And remember God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Like right after the Tower of Babel, when everything was scattered, God comes, calls this one man, Abraham, and says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was not Jewish. Abraham was a Gentile. And so then Israel comes. Remember, we looked at the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we saw that when they left Egypt, it said a mixed company went out. And that word in Hebrew is literally a mixed race company. The, the, this multitude of races and people left and they formed Israel. That Israel was more about theology than it was about biology. And so then you get, by the time we get to the New Testament, we look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is at the, at the end of the day, at some level, about race. We looked at Pentecost, where all the nations were starting to hear the gospel in their own language. Samuel looked at the Ethiopian eunuch, and now we come to the book of Galatians. And the, one of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote, and if you're not familiar with um, Presbyterianism or the Reformed faith, Besides Romans, Galatians is sort of like our precious, right? It's our like, you know, it's like, oh, this is our little favorite letter because of what it teaches. And it teaches, among other things, justification by faith alone. And that's, that's important. And we teach that all the time. But one of the things I think we miss when we look at the book of Galatians, at least our tradition, is we miss the context in which Paul is teaching justification by faith alone. And the context is one in which there are some racial tensions in a church. Right? In fact, almost every letter in the New Testament is about this, that there are different types of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles, and they can't figure out how to get along. And Paul comes and says, here's the gospel. Let's talk about how the gospel should help you figure out how to get along. And so if you remember what happened in the book of Galatians, basically 
that the Apostle Paul, we think, started this church by his preaching, and it was primarily, but not exclusively, a Gentile church. And at some point, some Jewish teachers came in. You see Paul had come in and saying, here's what you need to do to be saved. Trust Jesus, period. Full stop. Right? The, the justification is by faith alone. There's nothing you have to do. And some Jewish Christian teachers came in and started to say, you know, that's great. We're so excited that you guys have started this church and you've become Christians. But if you really want to be squared away, if you really want to make sure that God loves you, if you really want to make sure that you're in, if you really want to make sure that you are heirs to this promise God made to Abraham, you should probably also get circumcised. And you should probably follow certain feast days. You should follow these certain things of the law. And People were confused, as you can imagine, and someone wrote, went and told Paul, and Paul wrote this letter in response to them. And among other things, um, Paul's going to tell them, right, they, they said trust Jesus plus circumcision, that's going to make you a true uh, child of Abraham. And Paul's going to answer the question, who are really Abraham's heirs here? What, 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 is, what do you have to do, right? They would say trust Trust Jesus and get circumcised if you want to make sure that you're a child of Abraham. And Paul's going to come and say, trust Jesus and add nothing to make sure you are a child of Abraham. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Or Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You've heard me say that a number of times, I'm sure. And so today we're going to look basically at exactly who are Abraham's heirs. We're going to look at three things. And the three things that we're going to look at that Paul's going to point out here, that as he makes this argument, he's going to talk about faith. He's going to talk about family. He's going to talk about fusion. Okay, Faith, family, and fusion. Those are your three points if you're a note taker. And let's look first at this issue of faith. Verse 23, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now what the way Paul is making his argument here is he's saying... That things used to be one way, and then faith came, and they started to be a different way. In other words, when faith came, things changed. And Paul's using faith, when faith came almost synonymously with Jesus, but that he does that on, on purpose to make the point. So that things used to be one way, and that when Jesus comes, and when we trust him by faith, they, they're a different way. So what, how did they used to be? Well, they used to be, he says, first of all, he says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, I want you to notice the first thing that Paul says here. He doesn't say, um, now before faith came, the Jews were held captive under the law. Right? He didn't say before faith came, the Jews were held captive under the law. It was their law. God gave it to Moses on Sinai, and the Jews were the stewards of it, and the Jews were captive under the law. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say before faith came, the Gentiles were held captive under the law. Right? They didn't even know the law, but it was written in their hearts. Right? He says that in Romans, but, and they were held captive under it. He doesn't say that. He said, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. All people, Jews, or Gentiles, white or black, Asian or, or any other nationality, right? We were all held captive under the law. And what does that mean? That on one hand, we were all under the law of sin and death. There's no way to escape it in and of yourself. That we were, we were held captive. It's like the prison bars of our life. If you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, right? At some point in The Matrix, when, when Neo, the main character, is trying to figure out what's going on, Morpheus says, Neo, we were born in bondage. 
That we were, you, you were born in Egypt. You were born a slave. All humanity is born that way. So we were held captive on one hand. On the other hand, he said the law was also our guardian. And what does he mean by that? He says, the, verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Well, when you, re- when you look at the Greek, and the, the word for guardian there is actually pedagogue, and that actually makes things become very clear. It, would, it would, wouldn't make things become clear in our world, but in the, in the Greek world, what all a pedagogue did, we, we tend to associate pedagogue with pedagogy and with teaching. The job of a pedagogue in the ancient Near East or in the Greco-Roman world, basically middle to upper class families would hire a pedagogue to shepherd their male children to school and back more or less like if you see a a picture of a pedagogue and an old greek painting pedagogues always have a stick now why do pedagogues always have a stick because their job is to get the boy from point a to point b and from point b back to point a again and anytime the boy steps off the path their job is to smack him back on the path so their job is primarily about discipline and it's primarily about moving people in one direction and what he says here is what the law did is the law's job was to move us from point a to point b the law's job was to, to point us, to show us, to take us to Christ so that when we got to Christ, we could know that we, would, we were to be justified by faith. And everything changed, and yet we still struggle with the lingering effects of sin, right? In other words, he said we used to be under the law until Christ came. Now we're under this faith. We're under a different law. But there's a problem. We still struggle with the effects of the law. Do you? I do. Remember, remember Romans 7, Paul says, I, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, and every time I try to do the right thing, evil is right there with me. So that even though things were one way, we were imprisoned under law, even though we, we were under the guardianship of the law, even though that completely changed, and we are now under Christ by faith, we still struggle with the lingering effects of the law. And we still struggle with the way things used to be. Now, what does that have to do, if anything, with race and the racial situation in which we find ourselves. You see, usually you tell stories to illustrate biblical truth, and here I want to show you how biblical truth actually can illustrate life. You see, a lot of people in our congregation, a lot of people in the United States struggle with the issue of race and racism and whether or not there is structural racism and whether or not there's there's uh, systemic racism and the principle that we see here and the principle that we see throughout like in the books like romans can actually help us understand how that could be the case you see there, there, there's basically there's one group in our country let's say the ends of the continuum there's one group of, uh, at the ends of our continuum and i've heard black people white people asian people all lots of people of color say simply that this is a racist country period it was just founded on racism, it's racism, there's no hope for, for this country. On the other hand, there are people who I've heard, black, white, Asian, who say this is not a racist country, and it's not a racist country because we changed the laws. Now think about this for, for a minute. Both of those groups are right, and both of those groups are wrong. The laws were changed in our country with regard to race, but Do you see how even though a law changes, there could be lingering effects of that law? And people who struggled under the negative effects of the law and people who came after them might still feel that a little bit. You see, it's not either or, it's probably both and. 
right? That on one hand, that the, there are issues of race that we still need to deal with because even though the law changed, things are still, there's still things that linger. On, on the other hand, we have to embrace the fact that we are making progress, right? Just like in our own sanctification, you move forward a little bit at a time. We don't go from being uh, not Christians to being suddenly super Christians all at the one, one minute. It takes time. And so keep that in mind as you, be, as you think about race and systemic racism, that just because there are lingering effects doesn't mean that everything is completely racist, but also just because um, there are lingering effects doesn't mean that racism has gone away or just because the law has changed. And Paul does something interesting here. He says, how, do, how, is, how have things changed? Right? So on one hand, he says, when the law took us to Christ, and then everything changed, and how have they changed? Well, they changed because we went from being slaves to being part of a family. That what, what, transform, what took place in our lives was not just that we are saved from our sins, but something else actually happened as well. Let's look at the next point. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, um, now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, when he says sons here, that's sort of a generic, that, that's the, basically the eldest son in ancient Near East and Roman culture would, would inherit everything. So when you hear sons, don't you hear just sons? You could hear sons and daughters as we understand sons and daughters. You're part of this family. Now, if you're familiar with the Reformed faith, um, and our tradition, there are basically two doctrines that we tend to talk about a lot of the time. There are two doctrines, well, one doctrine we talk about a lot, one we don't talk about that much, we're going to talk about it this morning, that basically involve one-time acts of God. And the doctrine that, that involves a one-time act of God that we talk about a lot is question 33 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism for you theology nerds. And that question is this, what is justification? And the answer is this, justification is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. He does so not only because he counts the righteousness of Christ as ours, justification is received by faith alone. Now, if you had asked me last week sometime, Tommy, what comes right? I teach this stuff, by the way. What comes right after that question? Or if I ask you right now, if you're familiar with our catechism, what comes right after that question? Most of us think, well, sanctification, of course. And the next question is not about sanctification or how we grow in Christ. The next question is about adoption, right? What is justification? And then the very next thing is what is adoption? What is adoption? Adoption is the act of God's free grace by which we become his sons with all the rights and privileges of being his. In other words, justification is a one-time act, and justification is a one-time act in which God takes all of our sins and credits them to Jesus, and all of Jesus' sins and goodness and credits it to us, and we receive that by faith alone, so that now when God sees us, if you ask people oftentimes, you say, what is justification? They'll say, well, it's just as if I'd never sinned, and that's true, but it doesn't go far enough. Justification says it's not only just as if you'd never sinned, but it's also just as if you've been as righteous as Christ. And that's a, a, a wonderful doctrine. That doctrine spurred the Reformation. That, that doctrine changes hearts. It changes lives. And we talk about it all the time. We need to talk about, however, adoption more. Because, see, you see, justification alone can make you pretty individualistic. You know, you can say, my sins have been taken away, my sins have been imputed to Christ, my sins, my, his righteousness has been given to me, and I can walk around free, and I, 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 that you could do that. I know, because I do it. 
What the doctrine of adoption says is you're in a family now. You're part of a family. And when you're part of a family, you've got to deal with other people. And other people are important to the way you live out your Christian faith. And so Paul, Paul's telling this, this group of people that can't get along. He says, yes, you're justified by faith. Before the law, before Christ came, you were, you were captive under the law. Then Christ came. And you're now free by faith. However, you are also part of a family. You are sons of God. You have been adopted. You see, what justification does is justification changes our legal status. And adoption changes our family status. Right? Justification uh, affects the way our standing before God with regard to our sins. And adoption affects our standing within this group of people we find ourselves now. I mean, we're sons of God, and so we experience all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of being a son of God. And so how does that, what does that mean? What do healthy families look like? Right, well, I mean, adoption is basically about forgiveness and reconciliation and being part of a family and what do they look like? Well, do, let me, I'm not going to say anything about my family, but does your family ever have fights? <laughs> or disagreements? <laughs> right? Of course they do. Families fight. Families disagree. But what do families also do? Families forgive. Families reconcile. Families pursue peace. What do, do, what do healthy, and by the way, I'm speaking about healthy families now, or relatively healthy families. What, do healthy families just like bolt when things get bad? They don't. I mean, in my own family they did, but my own family wasn't healthy growing up. But Paul is saying now we're part of a family, and so that means everything changes. And what's important, I think, here is because it's, since we're talking about race and the context of this sermon series is this, one of the questions that, that I ask all the time or I think through, and one of the questions you probably have thought before, why don't like black churches and white churches work together more often? Right? Martin Luther King said the most segregated hour of the, the week is Sunday morning. Why is that? Why can't, why can't black churches and white churches get on the same sheet of music? Or black churches and Asian churches get on the same sheet of music? Or Asian churches and white churches get on the same sheet of music? Which, by the way, today, the church this afternoon that's coming here is an Asian church. And we're trying to help them out and work with them. You need to come and hear them as well. Why, don't, why doesn't that happen more? And I think the answer, unfortunately, is the reason that we don't work with each other and we don't function as family across cultural lines and across racial lines is because we do an incredibly horrible job within racial lines. In other words, it's hard to think about becoming a multicultural church or a church that works across cultures when a church can't even work together with itself within its own race or denomination. And what I mean by that is that monoculture churches, whether they're white or black or Asian, all of them are incredibly difficult places to be. All of them. I mean, probably, I guess it was probably last year at some point, we were going through a hard thing in our church with a staff person, and I called Leslie Braxton down the street, right? New Beginnings, he's a good friend. I said, Leslie, I need someone to talk about this that's not in my church so I can have some kind of objective opinion. And he said, come on down to my office. I went down to his office, and we, I ended up sitting there for about two hours, and we laughed till we cried telling stories about you. And, and about new beginnings, and it's just amazing. So here you have a, you, you have a, a black pastor and a white pastor. With that, what do you know? That people, whether they're white, black, Asian, or any other color, are difficult sometimes. 
And if <laughs> someone just say, I know. <laughs> Thank you for that little amen. Um, <laughs> everyone else is cringing right now. Um, I mean, imagine, imagine this. Imagine that you're a pastor and someone comes in your office and says, Pastor, I'm sorry, I need to tell you I'm leaving my family. And you're horrified. And you say, why are you leaving your family? And you, they say, they started listening to contemporary music. And you're like, what? How much contemporary music are they listening to? Two or, th- two or three songs a week. You're going to leave your whole family that you've been with for your whole life because you're, they just started listening to contemporary music? Two songs a week? Yes. What can we do to fix this? Organ. You play the organ all the time, I'll stay. That happens all the time, right? That, that, that you're like, oh, what a stupid story. When I first got here about 17 years ago, every time we've tried to fix the sound, people left the church. Why? Because they would come through and they'd say, I know you're fixing that sound and that's a slippery slope to contemporary music. <laughs> and they would just leave. It's hard to make progress when everyone wants their own thing. In the context of a family, as those of you who have families that are even relatively healthy, it's all about give and take, is it not? It's all about compromise. It's all about actually loving and giving up your rights. Paul says you're part of a family now. So the first step toward unity across racial and ethnic lines really is in some sense is making sure there is unity in and among ourselves. Now, by the way, our church at this point, there, it's, it's, I think, you know, I, I don't want to knock on wood on, at the pulpit because that would be superstitious and that would be hypocritical. We're in a pretty good place right now, right? We'll see how many emails I get this week after this sermon, but nonetheless, we're in a pretty good place. Let's talk, let's finish this up, talk about fusion for a minute here. Paul says that, that we, because faith came, it changed everything. Now we're in a family. And then he begins to talk about this fusion. And what I mean by that is this coming together of different things. Verse 28 or 27, he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So why does Paul go from family to baptism? Why did he bring baptism up now? Now, a lot of people think that baptism, he's just using it here as a synonym for salvation. And maybe he's doing that. But I also think he's doing it because he just talked about adoption. In other words, what if you're someone you're walking along and someone says, you know, you're adopted. <laughs> and you, you say, well, I am adopted. And they say, how do you know you're adopted? And you can show them your adoption papers. You can show them the contracts or whatever they do during adoption. In other words, our baptism in some sense is like our adoption papers. It's like the proof that we are in this new family, that we have been engrafted into this new family. In fact, he says that you have put on something in your baptism. He says, for as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You see, our baptism identifies us as part of this new family. When he says you put on Christ, the language there is, is the Roman language of what they would use for their toga barillus. It was basically like a, a bar mitzvah for Romans, that when you were 16 years old, you would have this big ceremony, as a male at least, a, a big ceremony, and you would get this new toga that identified you as a full son and a member of that family. Paul says that in this new family, you have been baptized and you have been given new clothes, and the new clothes is Christ himself. You are clothed in, on, with him, and you are clothed in him. 
And so when we put on Christ, what happens next? He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there's a couple things about that particular passage, right? I, many of you know, I, re, I don't like talking about politics from the pulpit. And in fact, I can't, I don't think I ever have, to, to be honest with you. But if you put yourself in the Roman context, in a Galatian context, where slaves had zero rights, where women had zero rights, where Gentiles and Jews were at odds with each other, for Paul to say there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, that's an incredibly political statement, <laughs> right? That's the kind of statement that if people go outside of the church and start talking that way, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. So when we say, you know, wow, we don't like to talk about politics, Paul, I think, is making a very, what would amount to a very political statement in his day, that it would have implications and ramifications, and it would have sent waves throughout Roman culture, and it did. And so what's, what's the point here? Basically, um, this isn't an erasure of their identity. It's more like a fusion. Most of the times, again, in our tradition, we read this passage, and it's sort of like race doesn't matter or gender doesn't matter. And, and, all, it's, so, and it's true with regard to justification. But what Paul isn't doing here, he's not erasing identity, whether you're, you're Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. He's actually creating this fusion of identity and this union and we know that because of what he says at the end of that he says for you are all one in Christ Jesus and that what that literally says there is is he says you are neither Jew nor Greek male nor female slave nor free he says for you are all one person in Christ Jesus that you are all these diverse things have come together and they're unified and when they're unified they create something different it doesn't mean that they're not jewish anymore they're not gentile they're not male or they're not female it means that together they're different and the way you might be able to get your head around this is think of an orchestra have you ever gone to see like a concert with an orchestra a big orchestra or even a small orchestra what what is it like in the beginning i mean like a half hour before the show even starts Right? You've got all the instruments and they're different places and they're all tuning and they're all playing and it's, all, it's a cacophony, frankly. And yet, they all are wearing the same clothes usually, right? The men are wearing tuxedos and the women are wearing black dresses and they all are playing in, their, in different ways and they're playing their different instruments differently and then what happens when the conductor comes out? It becomes quiet. And when the conductor comes out, Everyone stops playing his or her own song. Everyone stops tuning his or her own instrument. And when the conductor comes out, everyone starts playing the conductor's song. We play his music. And so when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, he's not saying that those things don't matter. He's saying that in Christ, though all those things become one person, that all the beauty of the Jew and all the beauty of the Gentile and the, the male and the female and the slave and the free, all the things that they bring, they come together and when they play the master's song, it's more beautiful than anything that any of them could produce on their own. I mean, think about it. What, I don't even know if you could call it an orchestra if you only had one instrument, but what if you only had violins? I love violin music. And I bet you if we had 10 violinists up here with a good conductor, they could play a pretty good song and a lot of good music. Or what if you, what, what if you had all tubas? Or what if you had all basses? Or what if you had all flutes? All of those things could produce something that's probably pretty good in talented hands. But could, all, could they produce, could the violins only produce music that only a bass can produce? They can't. 
Can they produce flute music? They can't. All of the instruments are needed. That's what I think Paul is getting at here. That ultimately is the vision for the church. And not just our church individually, but the church that in Revelation 7-9, every tribe, tongue, and nation comes around. And what are they singing? They're singing the conductor's song. They're not singing their own song. And because they're all singing it in their own language, but it's the same orchestra and it's the same conductor, somehow it comes off perfectly. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that, um, that this vision for uh, church being uh, diverse yet unified would be realized in this place. I pray that it would be realized in Kent and Renton and Seattle and Washington and throughout the whole world. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.